Hey, again, welcome to Living Hope. I'm Pastor Tim. Awesome to be with you guys this morning. Thank you for joining us. If you're visiting, pray that you are welcomed and encouraged. We have two more weeks in our series on the crucified, risen Savior. We looked last week, of course, was Easter at the resurrection, but John's gospel has a couple more chapters. And so we're going to look this week and next week at the impact that the risen Savior had in the lives of those first disciples in light of what Christ has accomplished in his death and resurrection. We're going to see this morning our call to faith and to mission. We're going to see our call to faith and to mission, our call to overcome doubt, to walk in faith and in belief, and to go out on mission, to go out empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we're in John chapter 20 uh, this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 19. If you have one of those blue hardback Bibles, we're on page 906. We'd love for you to read along, to follow along um, in your Bibles with us as we hear the Word of God, hear what happened. We're still on Sunday. Jesus rose Sunday morning. It is now Sunday evening, and John is going to give us the account by the Holy Spirit of what happens next. The Word of God says this, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We're going to pause there for now. Don't worry, we'll pick up and finish the the rest of the story. But I want to to pause there and look. just look at what happened that first Sunday evening. The disciples are gathered together. John tells us that the room is locked. They're afraid of the Jewish leaders. They're hiding. Jesus had only been executed three days earlier, Jesus, as they're meeting together in private, comes into the room and stands with them. Now, many people think that the text is implying that Jesus could walk through walls. Now, let's consider that for a minute. The Gospels make it very clear that Jesus was raised again to new life with a physical body. He could talk, he could walk, he could eat, he could be touched, but it was a glorified body. Now, here's what that means. That means when Jesus rose from the dead three days after his his death, he wasn't just resuscitated back to his old broken life. He had a physical body, but it was it was in glory. It was different from the bodies that we experience now. In a sense, that resurrection, not in a sense, it truly was foreshadowing the new creation. See, the Bible tells us when Jesus returns again at the end of time, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And we'll have physical bodies. We'll live in a physical world for all of eternity. But, but our state will be glorified. That means we and creation will be imperishable. We won't be subject to the fallen nature of this world. And so Jesus rose again with a body like that. Yes, physical, but, but new, glorified, imperishable. And so we don't know all the metaphysics of what that was like for Jesus. Maybe he could walk through locked doors. But maybe part of the new creation is just the specialized skill to pick locks. Or maybe, maybe as it happened to Peter uh, in the book of Acts, maybe an angel came, maybe the door was miraculously opened. Other gospel accounts indicate that Jesus in his new raised body could appear and, and reappear, 
before different people as needed. So even though we don't know the specifics of what happened, what we do know is that the disciples were in a room, locked, hiding. Jesus' appearance was surprising, and it seems to be something extraordinary about it. And so in verse 20, he greets them, and he says, Peace be with you. In other words, stay calm, it's me. And then he proves that it's him. He shows them the scars in his hands, the scars in his side. Now, I love this aspect of what God has done here. Jesus is completely restored, right? He's in a glorified body. He's raised, he's defeated sin, death, and the devil. He had a severe beating a few days before. He wasn't limping, okay? He wasn't still bleeding. He was, he was completely perfect and glorified. Yet, he still has scars. He still has the marks in his hands and his feet and his side. See, listen, listen to this. For all of eternity, we will worship Jesus as fully God fully human, a glorified body, the crucified risen Lord. As it says in Revelations, we will worship the Lamb who was slain. See, we're never going to forget what Jesus has done for us. We'll never forget the sacrifice that won our salvation. It'll be there in front of us for all of eternity, remembering what He did, laying down His life, taking on our sin and our shame. Now, I sort of wonder if it's going to be the same for me. Um, I haven't been through what some of you have, but when I was about 12, I cut the tip of my finger off in my father's table saw. And I sort of wonder, will I still have that scar in eternity? Some of you have, have scars or bodily ailments. Here's what we can say with certainty about the new heaven and the new earth and our resurrected bodies. While there may be reminders of our previous life, anything that we see or experience physically will not interfere with our new reality, and our new reality will be complete people, perfect people, without any injury, any disease, any weakness of any kind. That's God's plan for that, and we see that inaugurated, the first fruits in Christ, the first fruits to rise from the dead. Now it says in verse 20, when the disciples see this, when they see Jesus, they were glad. Now that's got to be the biggest understatement in the history of the world. I think they were glad. Other translations translate the Greek as they rejoiced, which is probably a little bit better, right? They rejoiced. They probably flipped out and were excited and jumped up and down that the Savior was alive. Their master, their king, their friend had come back to life. They now knew he was the Messiah. They believed. And they had this encounter with the risen Christ as Mary had had. We talked last week earlier that morning. Man, that's my prayer for each of us, for each of you this morning, that you would you would meet Jesus, you'd have an encounter, not just read about Him, not just walk and live as a Christian because it's the right thing to do, but that you would know Christ, that you would have an undeniable experience of Him in your life, in your heart, in your family, in the world, to know that Christ is real, that He's, He's truly died for you, truly raised for you, that it would be unbelievable, that you would rejoice with joy inexpressible. Now again, in verse 21, Jesus gives them another word of peace. The second time he says, peace be with you. I think he knows that they're wrestling with fear and confusion and uncertainty and they're going to need some peace. Peace is one of their greatest needs. And he knows they're going to really need peace when he tells them what he's about to tell them. Which you read in verse 21, he says this, as the father sent me, so I am sending you. See, Jesus is saying, look, look guys, the story is not over. You're not all just going to hop on my back and I'm not going to zoom you back up into heaven. You have work to do. There's a mission for you to do. I'm not done. Jesus here is commissioning those first disciples, those apostles and others that were with them, commissioning them for their mission on earth. We know in Matthew's gospel, we heard it this morning in the Acts 29 video. Matthew 28, we, we hear that that is the great commission. Here's another form of the great commission. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And Jesus is in essence telling them, look guys, you cannot stay huddled in this locked room. 
We have work to do. You have to go out into the world. And He is sending you and I as well. This is not just a commission for the first disciples. We too continue the work that Jesus started. And so as as God the Father sent Jesus, so He sends each one of us. Let's look for a minute. How is it that God the Father sent the Son? How is it that we are sent out? Somebody told me recently that they um, found it helpful when I when I give you guys little little numbered lists, and I was like, I you know I can do a numbered list. You know I love that. So how how did the Father send out the Son? First of all, the Son was sent into the world on mission, right? Jesus' mission. In earth was to come and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was his own words. Our mission is to continue that work as we spread the good news, as we live as followers of Jesus. Jesus needed to come into the world to fulfill his mission, and we need to go out into the world to fulfill our mission. It's a mission going into the world. Listen to what Jesus prayed for his disciples and for us as well in John chapter 17. Jesus prayed this to the Father. He said, I do not ask that you take them, that's us, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I do not ask for these only, meaning the first disciples, but also for those who would believe in me through their word. That's where we get that little catchphrase, in the world, not of the world, right? We are called to go out into the world. We're not to become like the world and take on the values and the priorities and the thought patterns of the world, but we are called to be light in the world, to be yeast that that brings leaven into the world around us. Sometimes this is called being incarnational. Christians are called to be incarnational. We use that term as a theological term to, to talk about Jesus in heaven who emptied himself taking on the form of a human, took on flesh. Incarnational is Latin there for, for taking on flesh. We too are called to go out to live among the people in our communities, in our families, in our workplaces, to live among those who need Jesus. Not just to stand on the side and, and shout, right? But to go out. Somebody told me one time, I've told you this guys before, about somebody driving through their poor urban community with a bullhorn and they would roll down the window and they would preach as they drove down the block with a bullhorn. You think that's an effective missional strategy? That's a terrible missional strategy. Right? You need to get out of the car and walk on the streets and meet your neighbors and connect and go out into the world just as Jesus did. We are sent as Jesus was sent into the world on mission. Secondly, empowered by the Spirit. Anybody ever been sent on a task or asked to do a job and you didn't have appropriate preparation or equipment? Then there's nothing worse than than that. Being sent out to do something without the right equipment, without the right preparation. My my, uh, father called all the kids and the grandkids and and, and they live on the river, down on the Gunpowder River, and we were going to replace all the the planking boards on their dock, on their pier. And uh, so I showed up with my rigid screw gun and we had like, I think it was, I don't know how many hundred... Two by two by eight treated lumber that had to be screwed down, three inch stainless steel screws through the through the top layer down into the you know fifty year old stringers, and and when I put my rigid screw gun on that first stainless steel three inch screw and it wouldn't even put it all the way down in, I realized I was in trouble, right? 
And, and a couple, uh, my, my, my brother and my brother-in-law that had the, the DeWalt's, well, they were not having any problem. And I soon realized this was not going to cut it. I was not going to be able to help out and finish this job, right? And so we, we traded drills and I found other things to do. But I said to my dad at the end of the day, I said, hey, dad, my birthday's coming up. I said, I don't know if you have a, an idea yet for what to get me, but I could sure use a DeWalt drill. <laughs> and I have that now sitting on my workbench. So to quote, Jesus, if if my earthly father will give me a DeWalt drill when I ask him, how much more so will our heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, amen? We don't go out on this mission without the proper preparation or equipment. Look at verse 22. After calling the disciples to their mission, it says that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why did he breathe on them? There's, there's some background here. In Hebrew, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. But it's also, the same word is also translated as wind, as breath. See, in the mind of, of an Israelite, the breath of God is the life of God, the spirit of God. The spirit, the breath, the wind of God. As we read in Genesis, the spirit of God hovered over creation. And then God breathed into Adam the breath of life. And we see here that the Son of God is breathing resurrection life into His disciples, representing the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, passing on to the disciples. Now, if you know the events, the disciples are going to wait around for seven weeks. It's not until seven weeks at the, the, the Israelite festival of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit will truly descend in fullness Tongues of fire resting on them, filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit, permanently dwelling, not just on them or around them, but permanently dwelling in the hearts of those first believers. And so what we see here, we can we can call a prophetic inauguration. See, the Spirit wouldn't fully come until seven weeks later, but here Jesus breathed on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit, prophetically inaugurating the new age of the Holy Spirit, where now we are equipped fully as the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. He's equipping them with the Holy Spirit, filling them, empowering them, just as he had been empowered. At his baptism, we read that the Holy Spirit descended. There was this public declaration of Jesus' identity, the beginning of his mission. He was equipped with the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit's empowerment in the lives of those first disciples, we see a bumbling group of misfits that are transformed to stand with confidence before Jewish persecutors before Roman authorities that could speak powerfully to thousands of people that each one of them went out on mission and spread the hope of Christ across the Mediterranean world. And Jesus, before his ascension, we read in Acts 1-8, told the disciples, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He was empowering them because they would not have been able to fulfill their mission to preach one sermon, to share Jesus with one person, to plant one church without the Holy Spirit. They could not have been sent out on mission, and neither can we. In each of us, the moment that we confess Christ as Savior, the moment that that our hearts are converted from, from death to life, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized, immersed, empowered with the Holy Spirit. You say, but Pastor Tim, I often feel inadequate. You say, I often don't feel ready. I'm intimidated to live on God, to live for God on mission. We just haven't really gotten a hold of this good gift. We don't know how powerful that DeWalt screw gun really is that the Holy Spirit has put in our heart. 
There's no reason for us to be intimidated. We have power. We have wisdom. We have the mind of God. We've been given a spirit of boldness. And we are sent on mission with Jesus into the world, equipped by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And and the Lord gives us a promise that when you stand before a friend, a neighbor, a spouse, a sibling, a parent, a co-worker, and you are stirred by the Spirit to speak, or you are asked a question, we are are given the promise that we have the equipping, that we will have the words. Jesus, look at this promise that Jesus gave His disciples in Matthew chapter 10. Now this this is a call to them when they actually have to stand before a court of law and give testimony before a judge, before civil authorities. Jesus tells them this, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And if I asked, I bet you many, many of you, particularly those with gray hair, would be able to say, Yep, I've seen the Lord do this. I've seen Him give me those words when I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to answer. But the Lord empowered me. And if God will give us those words, if the day ever comes where we stand before an accuser, I believe he'll do the same thing in your break room, in your backyard, in your family room. We have been empowered by the Spirit. Jesus was empowered and so are we. Thirdly, how how was Jesus sent out? Because we're sent out in the same way. Jesus was sent out proclaiming the message of forgiveness. Look at verse 23. Jesus gave his followers, it says there in verse 23, the right to distribute forgiveness or withhold forgiveness. Now we've got to be careful here. What, is, what does this mean? Is this saying that Christians have the authority to forgive people's sins? Hardly. I believe that we can best understand verse 23 as the authority and the responsibility that all Christians have to proclaim the gospel and to therefore invite someone else to believe in Christ and then to affirm their faith and to affirm the forgiveness that we find in Christ. See, the followers of Jesus declare that those who believe in Him have forgiveness and those who deny Him do not. Now look, ultimately only God has the power to forgive, but He has given the church the keys to the kingdom. Jesus himself said. That means we have the authority to call others to receive forgiveness and then to affirm, to validate as a church community that yes, you have now been forgiven and you now are a part of the people of God. This means we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the power of forgiveness. Friends, that's here for you this morning. For those of you that may have walked in not knowing the Lord Jesus, not not living in relationship, in, in harmony with your Creator, walking in guilt or shame or emptiness or hopelessness. Friends, there is forgiveness here for you. There is life here for you this morning. And I and I now offer you forgiveness in the name of Jesus. I offer you the right to come into the family of God, to confess that you need Him, to walk out of here as a son or daughter with, with forgiveness, with your old life washed away, with the resurrection power of Christ, that Holy Spirit filling you with purpose, with freedom, with hope. And so I call out to you today to come to Christ Turn to the friend or family member that brought you in here this morning. Come up and and talk to me or one of the pastors, the elders. Let someone pray with you to seal for us to affirm the forgiveness that you have in Christ. That offer is here today. That's part of our mission. Each of us has been sent out on mission, as we said, into the world and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the truth and the power that there is good news. There's good news of forgiveness and new life through faith in Christ. This is the mission that each of us have been called to, sent out into the world. 
Where have you been sent? We prayed earlier for Pastor, Ma- Pastor Ed and Maggie and his family are going to Arizona. As I, as I said, you know, some, some of you may be called to go, to go with him. Maybe God's calling you to Arizona or maybe a foreign culture or a different place. Maybe he's calling you exactly where you find yourself right now in your neighborhood. Calling you to your friends, to your teammates, your classmates, your family. You say, well, well, Pastor Tim, that, that's intimidating. I know, that's why God gave you the Holy Spirit. We say, that seems like a big job. Yes, it is a big job. That's why we do it together. And so we do it one step at a time, one word at a time, one act of service at a time. I was stirred during COVID to, you know, connect with neighbors, realizing how many of them I didn't know. And as soon as things opened up a little bit last year, I, I started started doing bonfires in our in our community in the open lot across the street as a way to connect, to build a relationship, to get to know people. I don't have a job. Pastor Matt already loves Jesus, so I don't I don't have a job where I can connect with coworkers. Hey, brother. But so when I'm on the 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 basketball court or the lacrosse field. I'm praying and I'm looking for opportunities. Now, it's, it's different for me, and I've told you guys this before. It's, it's kind of a blessing and a hardship. But as soon as somebody finds out I'm a pastor, it's either like, okay, yep, I'm going to go talk to somebody over here, right? Or, or they sort of spill their guts. So, so two weeks ago, I'm, I'm on the, watching my daughter's lacrosse game. And at the end of the first game, I was talking to one of these, one of the dads and, you know, I asked him what he did, and of course it reciprocated, and that now it opens the door. The game ended and I left, but, but she had another game, and, and we found our way to each other, and he just jumped right in, and man, he, he said so. And he started grilling me, question after question, theological question, cultural question, right? And, and you may think, well, Pastor Tim, you have a master of divinity, uh, you know, you, you preach every Sunday. Man, my heart's racing, you know? I'm intimidated, and what do I start doing? The same thing that I would call each and every one of you to do. Holy Spirit, help me to be calm. Help me to listen to this man's questions. Help me to answer his questions. Because some of them, I, I, he was a smart guy. And, And I needed God's grace and God's Spirit to give me the words. But we are sent as Jesus has been sent into the world. On mission, with the message of forgiveness, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a joy, it's a privilege. Go in faith. Live the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. The Lord goes with you by His grace to empower you to live and to be sent just as Jesus was. But but this story continues this morning. See, the disciples have this first encounter with the crucified, risen Savior, and it's powerful, but there's something about it that's incomplete. Right? Some of you know what we're going to read as we pick up in verse 24 of John 20, because there was somebody not there. Now, we know Judas is out of the picture, but there's another one of the twelve, Thomas, that's not with them that first Sunday evening. And so the apostles' first mission, I realized that this week, that the first person they ever told about Jesus was, was Thomas, right? He was the first one they had to share Christ with. But things don't go really well. Isn't that interesting? Their first evangelism opportunity, their first opportunity to share about their risen Christ, they get rejected by Thomas, one of their best friends in their group. Look at what the word of God says in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So we are sent out on mission. But part of that is for us to stand in faith. Part of that is to to call others to faith. And we see here in in Thomas' journey that the, the idiom that we often use, that seeing is believing, may or may not be true. I think Jesus kind of flips that on his head a little bit. Look at verse 24. Thomas is not with them, right? He misses out. Can you imagine missing that out? You ever had to get called into work or you had to, you know, get an emergency phone call? You got to leave the family gathering to go visit somebody in the hospital and you come back and everybody says, you'll never believe what you missed, right? Can you imagine Peter? Like, find time to run out to the store, I mean, uh, Thomas. So the next time they see Thomas in verse 25... The rest of the disciples tell him, Thomas, Thomas, you'll never believe what happened when you weren't with us last night. We saw the risen Jesus. He's alive. What Mary said is true. Now, to me, I think Thomas' response is a little rude. I, I, I feel like he's, he's being a little childish, a little selfish, clearly has no faith. He doesn't even say like, wow, that's great. I'm glad you guys are excited. There's no celebration, not even any sign of hope. He just says, I can't believe. He says, unless I touch him and see him and put my hand, he says, do you see that? He says, I will never believe. I mean, that's like some, some defiance. He says, I want to put my finger into the scar. I want to put my hand into his side. Maybe he thinks they're making it up. I don't know. Maybe he thinks they're, they're delusional. He doesn't respond in faith. I mean, there seems to be very little, if any, faith at all. And even though he says, I will never believe, I don't think he's completely closed-minded. He's got some serious, serious doubts. But I do think that his heart is open. I think he's wanting to know know more. He continued to hang around with the disciples. He didn't give up and walk away. I think he's wanting to see Jesus. He's wanting to find faith. Right? Cynicism, as as I said last week, and I don't know if this is the dictionary definition or not, but cynicism to me means you're closed-minded. You're driven by distrust. A disposition not to believe. A suspicion. But, but skepticism is, is open-minded. Yes, there's doubts. Yes, you're struggling with uncertainty, struggling with doubt. But there's a struggle there. You want to know. And I think that's where Thomas finds himself. And so eight days later, as he's still with the group of disciples, and you can imagine what that eight days was like. That was a long eight days for Thomas. Everybody else believes at this point. He doesn't. He's probably frustrated and hopeless. But they're gathered again, again behind locked doors, again still hiding from the Jewish opposition. Jesus comes in and he again declares peace because he knows that they still are dealing with fear and uncertainty. Peace be with you, he says. But look at verse 27. Jesus walks right up to Thomas. Now Jesus hadn't been there when Thomas had said those words unless I put my finger in his hands. But Jesus knows what Thomas asked for. More than that, Jesus knows what Thomas needs to come to faith. And so Jesus walks right up to him and he says, go ahead. Go ahead, Thomas. Touch, touch the scars. Go ahead, Thomas. Put, put your hand right here where the spear thrust into my side. Don't be unbelieving. Be believing. Have faith, Thomas. I love how Jesus comes right up to him, walks right up to him, 
unconcerned with his doubts and just meets him right in the midst of his doubt. And Thomas cries out in worship, my Lord and my God. Some commentators suspect that Thomas might not have even had time to check out the wounds. He just immediately is full of faith and responds in worship, calling Jesus his Lord and his God. And Jesus responds in verse 29. Catch this, friends. This is critical. Jesus says, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Now listen, I think Jesus said those words for you and I. I know he said them for me. Because he knows that we would read this That people would read it a hundred years later, a thousand years later. Now we read it two thousand years later and we would read it and say, man, I wish I could have been Thomas. I wish I could have touched him. Then I would never doubt. I'd never walk away. I'd be faithful. I'd be obedient. If I could just have that level of certainty. Some of us say, man, I want to touch him. In my moment of weakness and struggle and pain and doubt. But according to Jesus, far from being a disadvantage, listen, far from being a disadvantage, there is blessing when you believe without seeing. And some, some people do say, you know, if, if God would just show himself to me. You ever said that? You ever heard somebody say that? Well, I would believe. I don't know how you have the faith that you have. I'd love to have the kind of faith that you have. If God would just show up in a physical, tangible way, then I'd believe. Is seeing truly believing? I don't think it's that easy. I don't think it's that simple. I think there were probably people in Jesus' day that saw him and still didn't believe because the human heart has a way of rationalizing and explaining any number of overt realities. See, even after seeing Jesus, Thomas still had to have faith. See, listen, seeing isn't believing when your heart is wired to deny God. And that's the state that the human heart finds itself in in our fallen sinful nature. We're wired to deny God. In fact, Jesus could drop out of heaven right in this place in front of the most skeptical friend or neighbor that you know of. He could show up in his resurrected body, his wounds still there. And many, many people still would not believe. There are people that have heard the gospel and deny Christ, deny the reality of God's existence, deny their need for forgiveness, deny the hope of Christ. They explain it away. And people that deny the gospel don't do so primarily because of a lack of evidence. Romans chapter 1 says we have all the evidence that we need overtly clear to us that God exists. People primarily deny the gospel because they don't see the truth. They can't see the truth. Why? Because they don't want to see the truth. See, stuck in our sinful nature, we are content to be our own God. Content To live in our own misery. We think we deserve our guilt. We want to define our own existence, our own meaning, our own identity. And if someone offers us forgiveness, it seems too good to be true. And people will say, no, I don't want a free forgiveness. I want to earn it. I want to be miserable for my life, for the rest of my life, to try to make up for all the bad things I feel guilty about. People think the gospel seems too good to be true. Nobody should get something without earning it. Or people think, I don't want to submit myself to a God, to an authority. I don't want to believe in in a Savior that's going to call me to account. People deny the truth because they can't see it. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, even if our gospel is veiled, covered, covered up with a veil, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? Friends, belief and unbelief is, is, it, is at its root a spiritual reality. And there is a spiritual enemy. There is a, there is a God and there is, there is a devil. 
And if you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus or if you have loved ones that deny Him, if you wish that God would give you more convincing evidence, if you have friends or family members that don't love the Lord Jesus, don't, don't encourage them to wish that God would give them more evidence. What you are here this morning, if you're struggling with faith, is not more evidence. Don't wish for that, but pray. Pray that God would overthrow your unbelief, that the veil of sin would be removed, that the work of the enemy would be stopped, and that God would give you faith. You say, well, Tim, I don't believe. How can I pray to a God that I don't believe in and ask Him to give me faith? Do it in faith. Keep your heart open and trust Him and say, God, if you're there, speak to me. If you're real, make yourself known. If this if this Bible is not just some dusty, outdated book, if it truly is the Word of God, then speak to me when I read it. Give me eyes to see you. And so we pray for faith. We don't wish for evidence. What do we do if we struggle with doubt? Some here struggle with doubt. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're... Someone who doesn't believe, but you want to believe. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a believer. You say, yes, I follow Jesus, but I wrestle with doubt. And maybe it, it's doubt, for some, it's doubt that Christ is even real, that the gospel is even true, that, that there is a Savior. For others, it's not, it's not that kind of fundamental doubt about faith. Maybe, maybe you just doubt, you, you know that there's a Savior, you just doubt that, that He wants you. And you think, He, he can't possibly love me. Or maybe in the midst of all the painful things you're going through, you doubt that God's plan is good. Or maybe you doubt that, that God can overcome the aching sin in your life. And you say, yes, I know there's a Savior. Yes, I know that He saved me. Yes, I know I'll go to heaven one day. But He will never have triumph over this area of my life. And you doubt that God can have victory in that way. First thing I would say to you is how to handle your doubt. First thing is be humble. Be humble and honest about the state of your heart. Don't, don't be ashamed of doubt. Thomas declared it right before the ten followers of Jesus. Don't ignore your doubt. Don't suppress it. Don't pretend. The worst thing you can do is to pretend that your questions aren't there. Aren't there? Whatever form your doubt may take. See, listen. Doubt is not always the enemy or opposite of faith. Doubt is often a part of the faith process. Faith is, a, faith is a gift from God and then it's a process that we grow and it's a muscle that we build and exercise. The famous English preacher Charles Spurgeon said that if any Christian claims to never struggle with doubt, Spurgeon says that we should doubt him or her. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, friends, let's not pretend we have it all together. Don't act like your faith is stronger than it really is. Let's be humble enough with one another to acknowledge before God, to acknowledge before one another that at times, yes, our faith is mixed in with doubt. At times, yes, our love for the Lord is mixed in with a wayward heart that wonders if it's true, that wonders if we can truly live for God, that if if we belong to Him. Faith and doubt is often mixed together in our hearts. And so be honest with yourself. Be honest with your spouse. Be honest with your family. Be honest with your elders and your church community and your life group. Ask those questions. Share your, your struggles. There's a young man that, that I connect with and communicate with and, and, and get together with on a regular basis. Grew up in the church, knows the gospel, knows the Bible, but is riddled with questions, not sure if he believes. And every time he asks me a question, he feels like he has to apologize. Hey, I'm sorry, I hope this doesn't offend you. And I keep telling him, I tell him over and over and over again, you've yet to ask me a question that not only have I not thought of, but I have not asked myself in my own heart. 
You don't need to apologize for these. These questions are good. I'm glad you're asking these hard questions. I want to help you through your doubts to come to Christ. So first of all, friends, be humble. Be honest about the state of your heart. Second of all, take your doubts to God and ask Him for help. He knows they're there. Don't try to hide Him. Don't try to hide them from Him. Take your doubts to God. Ask Him for help. Some of you know the story of the man in the Gospels. He comes up to Jesus. He's utterly desperate. His beloved son, his child, is plagued by this demonic spirit. And and, and this demonic spirit in his son is, is causing self-destructive behavior. The boy's life is literally on the line. And the father cries out to Jesus and says, If you can do anything to help us, please have compassion. And Jesus responds. He's taken back. He says, What do you mean, if I can help you? Jesus says to the man, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the father cries out in his desperate, humble state. He cries out to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, if you've never said that in your own heart, it may sound like a, like a contradiction. But I believe, help my unbelief is one of the most purest, simplest prayers that we can pray. Now listen, that father that day bringing his his ailing son to Jesus didn't say, well, I have too many doubts. I guess Jesus can't help me. I guess Jesus won't be able to rescue my son. The man was plagued by doubt. But it didn't keep him from going to Jesus. It didn't keep him from crying out and asking for help. I believe help my unbelief is a statement that says, yes, I'm weak. Yes, I'm wrestling. But I'm taking my wrestling and my doubt and my struggle to you, God, because I believe that you hear me, that you can help me. See, listen, doubt is a weakness, no doubt about it. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a, it's a, it's a virtue or something we should strive for. Doubt is a weakness. And guess what? We have a God that loves to overcome our weaknesses. He loves to help us with our weaknesses. Only God can give you faith. Only God can overcome your doubt. And only God can strengthen your weak faith. And when you look at that father in that story in the gospel, it's Mark chapter nine, by the way. We see that despite his doubts, the father was driven. He was driven to cry out to Jesus. Why? Because he was so desperate. He knew he had nowhere else to go. And some of us run and we try other things. But until you're desperate, until you're humble enough to say, God, I I need you because I have no other place to turn. That's, I believe, when our heart is ready for God to overcome our struggle and our doubt and our weakness. Friends, I ask you this morning, are you desperate? Some of you have children that are in, in, in harm's way, just as that father was in Mark chapter 9. Some of you in your own life are, are so desperate, so broken, so hurting, you don't think that you can go on. Listen, listen, Jesus came to rescue us. He came to die for us, to rise again, that our old life could be washed away, that a new life could be born up in us because of our desperate need. And His death and resurrection is not just what you put your faith in. Hear me. The work of Christ is what empowers your faith. He doesn't just say, get it all together, get your belief and your theology right, and then come to me and believe that I'm Savior. He says, no, no, I'm Savior, and so I'll help you believe. I'll give you the faith that you don't have on yourself. Friends, wherever you are today, He can help. You say, I believe, help my unbelief. He can help. Thirdly, how do we handle our doubt? Trust in God with whatever faith you have. Take your doubt to God, but also take your faith to God. You say, but it's minuscule. It's embarrassing. It's okay. Don't be embarrassed. See, doubt, as I said, is often part of the faith process. The big question is not, will you doubt, but what will you do when you doubt? When you doubt that the Lord loves you, doubt that He's real, doubt that He can help you, doubt that He can meet you. 
Doubt that Christ truly rose from the dead. Like Thomas, ask those questions and then wait. Thomas waited for eight days. And I hope and pray that he would have waited even longer. Wait for the answer. Remember, Jesus gave Thomas exactly what Thomas asked for because Jesus knew that's exactly what he needed. If you humbly seek the Lord, He will give you what you need. Don't make the grave mistake of thinking that you have to have it all figured out before you can put faith in Jesus. Look to God. Look to Him with whatever faith you have this morning. Whatever faith you have this week when you reach that place of despair and desperation. No matter how big or how small it is, take your faith to God and say, God, help help me grow my faith. Help me to know you. Help me to have certainty. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, gives us this this illustration. He says, imagine you're hiking on the side of a, on the big mountain. Hold, hold up just one second. Don't put that up yet. Imagine, imagine you're, you're hiking on the side of a mountain and, and you're walking along the edge and the trail comes close to this, this sheer cliff and, and you start to, you start to slip. You start to wobble and, and you begin to topple over the side of the edge, the side of the cliff. And as you're falling, you see this branch ahead of you, and you think in that split second, maybe I can reach out and grab that branch. Is it strong enough? Will it hold me? Now listen to what Keller says. He says, how can it save you? If your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you're lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts, and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. He goes on to say this. Listen, friends. This means you don't have to wait for all doubts and fears to go away to take hold of Christ. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you have to banish all misgivings in order to meet God. That would turn your faith into one more way to be your own Savior. Working on the quality and purity of your commitment would become a way to merit salvation and put God in your debt. It's not the depth and purity of your heart, but the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf that saves us. Can we hear that? Can we receive that this morning? Listen, weak faith in a strong God is still powerful. It's not your faith that saves you, but your Savior that saves you. And so as we are all on the precipice of that cliff, wobbling, about to go over, just cry out, reach out, grab hold of the branch with your doubts, with your uncertainty, with your sin, with your struggle, with the mess that is your life and is my life, grab hold of the branch. And He will grab hold of you. And He will hold you securely. Grab on to Christ. Friends, Jesus said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. See, believing without seeing is the essence of faith. As Hebrews says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Now, I don't believe that means that, that faith is without basis. God doesn't call us to a blind faith. There's, there's strong evidence for the existence of God, for the reliability of the Bible, for the historicity of the resurrection, for the veracity of the gospel. The inspired written word of God affirms, convicts, calls us to faith. 
In, in, in the chapter that we read, verses 30 and 31, that's what John said. Look, Jesus wrote, did many other signs. They aren't recorded in, in what's written here. But John says what is written is what? It's recorded so those who read it might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The Bible is literally written so that we can believe. Written so that we can have life. And as you read the word of God, he speaks to you. He opens your eyes. He assures your faith. See, the greatest affirmation of faith in Christ is not seeing or touching. It's the Spirit's work in your own heart. And even without physically seeing Jesus in the flesh, His Spirit is even now alive in us, assuring our hearts. And for those of you that have experienced that tangible relief from your guilt, you know that Christ is at work. For those of you that have experienced the peace of God's presence in the midst of insurmountable struggle, You know that the risen Christ is at work. Those of you that have experienced the strength to walk away from sinful habits and no longer longer find comfort in the things of the world, you know that the risen Christ is at work. See, the scriptures say that, that on this earth we walk by faith, not by sight. But we're not stumbling in the darkness. The Christian life is not just wishful thinking. Faith is a gift from God. But He doesn't give us blind faith, as I said. It's a seeing faith. A faith that even now truly sees the Lord. The scriptures say that the light has shined out of the darkness into our hearts. The light of Christ in our hearts. And so, yes, there is blessing in believing without seeing. Because faith, listen, faith is actually stronger than mere sight. Because when God turns the light on and He speaks to you, there's no denying it. And so we see God at work in our hearts and in our world. And every day that we follow Jesus, our strength, our faith is strengthened. Our faith is affirmed as Jesus again and again proves himself to us. As we are rooted in faith and those roots grow deeper. As we eagerly await for the day when Jesus will return and we'll see him face to face. And even now, in a very real, real way, we do see him. It's just that in this fallen world, that the sight that we have is, is dim, isn't it? It's dim sometimes. The scriptures say that we see in a mirror dimly, but when Jesus returns, we'll see him face to face. The scriptures say that now we know in part, but one day we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. And so see now with the eyes that God has given you. Hold on now with the strength that God has given you. Seeing isn't always believing, but the Spirit's work in our hearts is, is believing. And so yes, blessed are those that have not seen and yet have believed. Pray this morning for saving faith. As the worship team comes up, hear, hear this promise from, from 1 Peter chapter 1. The apostle writes this to us. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Just hear this as a prayer. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let God stir you with faith this morning to go out into the world, to live on mission, to share this hope, to call others to forgiveness, to call others to new life. Will you stand with me as we pray, as we worship, as we close with this song and ask God to do this work in our hearts. Come Holy Spirit, we ask now. Fill us with faith. Fill those that are weak and struggling with with the Spirit's conviction, with the hope of eternal life, with the assurance of faith. 
We're reminded that You have sent us out even as You sent Jesus out. And I pray that we would receive that as a, as a joy, as an opportunity. Help us to not be intimidated, to press into the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, give us faith. Give us courage. Strengthen those who came in today with doubt. Press upon our hearts the friends and family and neighbors and co-workers that you're calling us to live the gospel, to speak the gospel. Bear fruit in our lives. Strengthen us that you could use us for your purposes. Be present among us. Hear our worship. Hear our prayer. We ask in Jesus' name. Come, Lord.